you are going to inherit this investigation into the Trump orbit. Do you think it's right to potentially just recuse yourself and say, you know what, I've commented on the guy, said I think something like he's lawless. Welcome to the Lost Debate, unconventional media for the rest of us. I'm Robbie Gupta, and this is a special episode where I had a chance to interview a good friend of mine, Alvin Bragg, who last week won a historic election to become the next district attorney for Manhattan. And if you don't know this seat, it's a very important office. If you watch Law & Order, that's the prosecutor's office that we're talking about here. And it's a place where so many important cases, not just for the city of New York, but the country as a whole come out of this district. And Alvin ran on a reform platform, and he has a lot of bold ideas about how he's going to decrease incarceration coming out of the island of Manhattan, but also how he's going to create a better dynamic between the police and citizens of New York, uh, and how he's going to reprioritize the office as a whole. And you know, I I helped him in his campaign a ton, and I had a lot of questions throughout the campaign just about like the practicalities of some of the things that we were talking about, like what would it mean to de-emphasize certain crimes? What would it mean to think about resisting arrest differently? What would it mean to use different strategies to cut gun violence? And so we get really into the weeds to say like, now that the election's over, what is it going to mean to actually implement these promises? And he has a lot to say, super insightful, super interesting. And I'm really excited for you to listen. Well, welcome to The Lost Debate, Alvin Bragg. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, congratulations. How do you feel right now? I, well, I feel good. I'm hanging out with you, right? You know, <laughs> like a little reunion. Haven't seen each other in person in two years. Is that right? No, no. I saw you on the primary night. I saw you the night oh, right, that you right, won. Right, right, right. The, the, the one night where we, yeah. where we were in person for, for a bit. And so you just won. We're fresh off of your victory. You are the incoming district attorney in the island of Manhattan. Why is this, like for people who are not from New York City, what's the significance of the office of district attorney in Manhattan? So for anyone who's not from New York City and who hasn't watched Law and Order, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it is, I mean, the history of the office. Um, well, I guess I should back up. Manhattan's the best island on earth. Except uh, for the, Stan the island of Staten. Well, we can, we yeah. minds can disagree. Um, but, you know, I think the, the history from, you know, District Attorneys Hogan and Morgenthau, Manhattan as a, you know, financial center, uh, you know, so doing uh, types of prosecutions that aren't, you know, seen in other jurisdictions and just everything else that comes through Manhattan, all of our commerce, the density of the people there. It's just a, an, an office that um, much like and I'll just to, to, to remove our Manhattan versus Staten Island rivalry, say the city. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, from our fashion to our music. Uh, you know, we're, we're exports. Right. Uh, we export. And it's the same with I, I, I hope with the model of uh, what we hope to do in the Manhattan DA's office. And so, and speaking of, you'll be taking over from Cyrus Vance uh, in what, a few weeks at this point? Uh, yep, January 1st. January 1st. What, you know, in your first few days in office, what are your main priorities? So, you know, from a management perspective, you know, it's per, you know personnel going in. I mean, we're really using the time now, um, kind of the two months we have um, for personnel, new personnel, assessing current personnel. But I would say, you know, day one, you know, substance, um, guns uh, and Rikers are the two things that, that we want to be making decisions on and putting plans into motion, uh, you know, starting from day one. And so we did some coverage last week on Rikers, interviewed some reporters who shed some light on the horrific conditions that are happening there. What role does the Manhattan DA's office have to play in making Rikers a more humane place or reforming it or abolishing it or whatever the policy is? 
other than just prosecuting fewer crimes and sending fewer people to Rikers. So I mean, that's the main, I mean, the census, right? The Manhattan disproportionately so compared to the other boroughs sends more people to Rikers. Uh, and so assessing who should be there, uh, how we can respond to what I, what I think is an urgent humanitarian crisis, you know, in a way that will be safe, um, but also fair and, and, and more humane. So that you, you put your, your, your finger on the exact issue, which is just the number of people that Manhattan sends there and look, taking a look at that and responding to it so that we can address it. Because, you know, that's what's driving uh, or a big piece of it. Right. You look at the inputs. It's the people who are who are there, as, as your listeners know, most of them pre-trial. And then also we obviously have the, the issue in terms of the corrections officers and the staffing shortages there. DA obviously has no part of that equation, but the equation of sort of who is being sent there, the five CDDAs uh, have a lot of say there. Yeah. And and big part of your campaign was reprioritizing the kinds of charges you're even going to bring. Uh, so what are the highlights there? What are some of the major differences between the way that you're going to approach the kinds of charges you're going to bring and, and prioritize in general versus your predecessor? Right. We really want to change the, the orientation to, I think, the things that people are talking about, like public safety challenges, gun trafficking, sexual assaults, uh, and away from you know things that may be the subject of conversation. But when you have a longer conversation with people, much like this format here, people don't want incarceration as a response. So, you know, more than 80% of the city's docket are misdemeanors, much of which have nothing to do with public safety, in my view. One case, just for example, you know, we had a, a homeless person who bought, you know, food and toothpaste with one counterfeit bill. Um, and then because of, you know, some of his criminal history, the, the sentencing suggestion was five to 10 years. That's not making us safer, someone using a counterfeit bill. And there's a whole range of conduct that I think we just need to be responding to differently. And a lot of it is coming from either, you know, you know poverty and circumstances, uh, substance use disorder and mental health. So scaling up those treatments and supports and then using our, our system of incarceration for people who are committing sexual assault, for who are doing human trafficking, who are, you know, gun trafficking, which are, in my view, are true public safety threats. Why does the Manhattan DA's office have such a poor record on sexual assault uh, prosecutions? I was reading some data that showed that it has, it drops more cases, I think, than any other borough or something like that. Do you have any sense of, I mean, that's probably a priority just to dig into that data, why that's the case, but it seems strange. Yeah, so the first thing I would say on that is, and I've, I've talked to a lot of stakeholders and a lot of experts, is unlike other areas where there you can point to sort of a leader this is something we kind of struggle with nationally, right? You know, sexual violence, sexual assault is the most underreported violent crime in America. And so I think certainly I've been focused on Manhattan, but just generally when you talk to survivors and survivors groups, they're, they're the kind of system-wide challenges. You know, in Manhattan, I think we're in a negative feedback loop where you have survivors who've come forward uh, in certain matters. The case of um, the former Dr. Robert Hatton, a gynecologist at Columbia, comes to mind. Sexually assaulted dozens of patients. The plea resolution there was probation. And I've talked to a number of those survivors. They talk about being dealt with coarsely. Um, by the DA's office. By the DA's office. And so I, I think we're in a situation where we really do need a reboot, where folks who are coming forward courageously are not being treated coarsely. And so therefore it makes it less likely for someone else to come forward and we're just in, in, a, in, a, in a spiral. And so we need to reboot. A significant thing I want to do, because I think I've learned so much campaigning, talking to survivors, is bring those offices 
bring those voices within the office. Like I think if you spend time with the survivors and listen to them talk about how they were treated, that that's gonna in and of itself help change conduct. Uh, not just one time, obviously, but really bring them inside the voice as a, as a staff to help us you know, address those cultural issues. So that's, that's something that we're working on during the transition. And so you talked about the overlap of mental health and homelessness. You know, as somebody you know where I, I live, I live right by the Bowery and by the Bowery Mission. And so in that neighborhood, you interact with a lot of people who uh, are homeless. And one thing I know that you grappled with and throughout your campaign is like, what is the role of the DA's office? And so after going through the full process and, and now about to take the helm, outside of the, the, the role of whether to prosecute somebody who's homeless or not, what resources do you have at your disposal to tackle mental health issues and, and homeless issues? And are there any other resources that are at possible to, to bring to the table that you can ask for or work with the legislature to have them allocated to you to truly build that kind of modern DA's office that you're talking about? Yeah, well, we, so we, we, we need more resources. We, we, we need a better mental health infrastructure, but there are things that the DA's can do. So, so right now we have mental health court. It's not perfect, it needs to be improved, but you need the consent of the district attorney to get into mental health court. So, which would be you. So, which you would be, could, right. yeah. so that's a lever that we can pull and make that more available. But then as you suggest, there are things external um, you know, working with, uh, you know, the incoming mayor who's talked a lot about crime prevention to sort of harden our infrastructure in the space. So some of it is beyond the, the four corners of the DA's office. I, I view the DA as sort of being part of the board of directors, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for the, for the city. And in particular, I know, you know, if we don't uh, you know, reduce homelessness, I will be getting calls to prosecute people for being homeless. For and sure. so, you know, being a part of the conversation proactively addressing it and talking about it as sort of a broad public health, public safety issue, because often what happens, right, is people always say, oh, it was the 10th time someone, someone was arrested and they did X, Y, Z. Like, we don't talk about the nine prior times with the system failures. And if we get the structures in place, it, it'll be fairer, it'll be more humane. And ultimately, we can avoid that, you know, 10th time when then something tragic happens and we're all talking about it. Totally. And you mentioned the, the incoming mayor. One point of potential disagreement, although he seemed to suggest it wasn't an area of disagreement between you two, is, is the plainclothes unit, uh, the task force for the NYPD, which, correct me if I'm wrong, you know this better than I do, was a unit of the NYPD that was primarily tasked with dealing with gun violence and taking guns off the streets. I think your position is that the disbanding of that unit was a good thing and we shouldn't bring it back. I think his position is that he wants to bring it back under a different name potentially. Is that right? Is there, is, is there actual daylight between the two of you? And if so, like, how are you going to resolve that with the mayor? Yeah. So, so I supported it being disbanded, which was, you know, done relatively recently by the current mayor and the current police commissioner, you know, in large part because of the, you know, I think in my lifetime, they're most associated with, um, you know, Ahmed Diallo and that shooting and some other, you know, civil rights issues. So I think there's a way to do this more effectively um, by focusing really on gun shipments and guns coming in. But I, but I am very interested. I mean, it, the, the mayor-elect and I have had sort of ongoing conversations, have been very productive, lots of agreement. And what he said is he wants to bring it back, but in a different form. And so I hope to be a part of the conversation and sort of what that looks like. You know, I've, So you're I've, open to it. 
Well, I'm, I'm open to hearing more about <laughs> about, the, about the plans because you know what I would say is I'm not opposed to undercover operations as a general matter, right? right. As a prosecutor, so you don't think every police officer needs to be wearing a uniform at all times? Right. Is what you're saying, right? Yeah. You, you know, so that unit and how it conducted itself, I view, and I think some subjectively so had some some, some real issues. Yep. I could see, and in fact, you know, I mean, I did an investigation as a federal prosecutor where we investigated a, a business that laundered you know, tens of millions of dollars for a violent, um, you know, uh, uh, drug enterprise. We used undercovers as part of that, but it was targeted, mm -hmm. um, you know, and as part of dismantling a system, sending undercovers out to deal with the person on the street corner. And we see the, the you know, the the errors, right? That, you know, the, 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 the shooting I mentioned with um, Mr. Diallo, who had a phone and not a gun, right? Well, if you're running a long-term investigation, um, you know, with wiretaps, kind of that I was talking about with that, that that thirty million dollar business, that's dismantling a system. When we when we brought that case, we turned off the money flow to an entire enterprise um, or that part of the enterprise, and we saw enduring public safety effects. So that I think is good law enforcement. You know, deploying you know plainclothes folks in sort of a less structured way. I'm concerned about that, but I, I welcome the conversation. We're having really good conversations and really sort of in the spirit of, of this show, I think we need to be having conversations where there are um, different approaches and talking them through rather than sort of, you know, not talking them through as often happens in our, in our kind of body politic. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things you ran on is in part, part of your record was, I think in some of the public corruption work that you did at the state attorney general's office, you if we, I vaguely remember you prosecuted crooked cops at times. Is that correct? Uh, and then you've also, I think, you've been a champion of certain policies, like the way that you have de-emphasized certain prosecutions of resisting arrest, for example, which we'll get more into detail on. After the record that you ran on and some of the bold changes that you're looking to make, where does your relationship stand right now with the NYPD? You know, it's it's a I think it's a great question, right? Because I spent the last you know two weeks, you know, in court you know, representing Eric Garner's mother. Uh, in a, just these past two weeks. Just these past two oh, weeks. Wow. Uh, so you do have some love for the island of Staten. I do. Yes. Yeah. yeah well, certainly for Miss Carr, uh, <laughs> who uh, you know spent uh, a lot of time with over the last couple of years, and sort of her persistence, um, you know, her vigor uh, in the pursuit of justice and accountability is is inspiring. So. My, my, my two favorite things that come out of Staten Island, Miss Carr and you. Well, I'm a good company. I'm a good company. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, and people ask the questions like, you know, oh, you're, it's the week before the general and you're in court, you know, examining an officer myself and other officers being examined. But, but what, what I said is, look, I've been doing this for 20 years where, you know, as a federal prosecutor, I prosecuted an FBI agent for lying the same time as working on cases side by side with the FBI. And what I've always said to law enforcement is this is a part of safety. I mean, you know, we've seen studies, you know, post George Floyd, post incidents where where uh, are you know, high profile ones. We see 911 calls drop. We see trust go down. And I've been in rooms where a witness doesn't want to come forward. A victim doesn't want to speak because they don't trust the police. And so. I know as a former prosecutor that these civil rights cases really are linked to public safety. You can't make cases if people don't trust you. And so mm -hmm. really 
talking that through. Um, and I've got to think about how to do that institutionally. I've been able throughout my career to do it with the police officers I've worked directly with and develop trust. And something I've been thinking about is how you scale that conversation up and have it on behalf of an institution. And where I come out is, you know, end of the day, the institution's made up of people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'll be very interested in the incoming, you know, NYPD team and really talking and talking these things through. And again, if there is disagreement, it being spoken about and we're talking it through and uh, coming from a place of, look, we all want to be safe and want to be fair rather than not talking about it and waiting for something to happen. And then we're, you know, in a crisis mode. Yeah. The fascinating part of it all is the mayor is a former NYPD officer. So that adds a whole new wrinkle to the, the, the political element here. And so the, one of the things I think makes the cops nervous, I think is the way that you are looking at resisting arrest and I think you have a pretty nuanced vision of how it's being used right now and how you want to prosecute it. The critics will say, all right, Alvin Bragg wants to get rid of resisting arrest uh, as a prosecutable charge unless cops are hurt in the process. And that means that people are just going to run away from cops every time the cops come to them. What do you say to that? So, I, you know, I, I say for folks who've kind of spent time on this, the charge that I said I'm not going to do is a standalone resisting arrest. I've never understood it. Like back when I was a kid, friends getting arrested. And I've asked law enforcement this question for 20 years and having had it. Like how could you only get resisting arrest? Right. Which, like, so what, if there's nothing else associated right. with it. Like, like, like well, what did you resist? Yeah. So what's a resisting arrest? Yeah. I said, no, 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 but like, what were you doing in the first place? It's a resisting arrest case. It's like, well, that just doesn't, I've never been able to process that. Um, and so to me, yeah, if there's another charge and then you resist the arrest, well, okay, that 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 makes some sense. So the standalone resisting arrest, to me, I found throughout time as a criminal defense lawyer and then growing up, is just a proxy for like you mouthed off, mm -hmm. right? You did something I didn't really like, mm -hmm. um, and like we just don't have. I mean, that, that that's not public safety. Um, you know what what folks don't talk about on Twitter is. I've prosecuted an assault case, right? I've prosecuted uh, more than one. Saying, yeah, for yeah. people who assault a police officer. That's serious. Uh, people who are seeking to harm our officers while they're doing their work, that is a very significant matter. I've done that type of case and taken it seriously. So the notion when I like, you know, look at the, you know, people who respond to my pause and say, oh, well, he's going to put the police in jeopardy. It's like, no, no, I've, I've prosecuted this guy. I know how to do them. But I also know that if you go around scooping up mostly young mostly black and Latino, mostly boys for resisting arrest charges. That's, that's what I've seen. Um, you know what? Like when you go back to the block because you want to do the more significant crime, who's not talking to you? Right. Those same kids. Yeah. And so one thing I'm that, that I want to clear up is, so this idea that you have to have caused harm to the officer. Like, let's say I get charged with, you know, bur or at least I'm, I'm wanted for burglary or something and the cops see me on the street and I'm running away from them. If I run away from them and then at some point they find me and I've run away from them, I didn't hurt them in the process. Do I still get charged for that resisting arrest if I have an underlying crime? So just, I mean, then there's lots of cases on this and we'll go to, but just, just flight, you know, um, you know, it's I, different than it's, resisting. It's different, right? It's different yeah. from resisting. Resisting, you know, we've seen, you know, you know, on one, um, you know, and we just kind of the passive resistance that we see at a protest, for example, you know, versus resistance could be pulling away. And, you know, when that's associated with a, a significant charge, I think it can be appropriate. Although, you know, even in those cases, like, you know what, if you rob the bank and you resist arrest, like, what should we be spending our time on? Right. The rob robbery of the bank. Right. Um, so I don't have a philosophical 
issue with charging it when it's in tandem with the, you know, with a with a with an actual you know crime that I think involves you know public safety issues. But even then, it really is the you know that's the tail on the dog. Yeah, I, yeah. I think with the cops, you know, the well-intentioned cops amongst us are worried about they're not going to be able to actually apprehend anybody, and I think they're worried that in a world where everybody's got their cell phone, it's hard enough to they will argue it's hard enough to do their job and try to like bring somebody into custody who's committed a crime as they understand. And then obviously they're not the prosecutors. They don't have full information. Sometimes they're just being told somebody committed some crime. And they're like, how do I bring somebody into custody if that's my job, if that is not a crime, you know? Like that's what they're worried about, I think. Yeah, so you know, I've worked with so many officers and federal agents over the years that they managed to arrest lots of people without this issue coming up. Yeah. And I work with some extraordinary ones. And I just, I just think it's sort of part of the job. Yeah. Right. Um, and the notion of sort of what is criminal versus what is not. Officers have to be able to affect arrests. That's, you know, important, essential. But I guess to me, the, the issue is where's the focus, right? So if, if the only thing you're affecting, affecting arrest on is a resisting arrest, the question to me is, what are we doing? On the other end of the spectrum, if you're being arrested for, you know, a triple homicide and you resist arrest. Well, yeah, maybe we'll add that charge. But the point is, it's a triple homicide. So right. to me, you know, I want to focus on the underlying crime. But as I said before, I think where I see the line is people who do harm to officers. And I've done those kind of cases and, you know, committed to doing those as well. You can't assault a police officer. Right. You know, you campaigned in the middle of the pandemic and also in the middle of the renewed attention to civil rights issues in the wake of George Floyd's murder, there was also a corresponding dramatic increase in violent crime in New York City during that period of time. What's your sense of what was driving that? Um, you know, murders, um, I think in particular, were up, gun violence. Uh, what was your sense of where, what was driving those massive increases, which seem relatively sustained? It seems like year over year, we might be looking for something as similar to last year. And what do you think you can do about it as the DA in Manhattan? Yeah, and I think the last piece is the, is the most urgent one. But to take the, the question as a whole, you know, the campaign really had chapters, right? So, you know, we, we campaigned for a while on, on issues of sort of equity, racial justice, police accountability, and it being a part of safety. And then George Floyd happened. And I think that brought attention, rightly so, to I'm trying these to remember issues. when you announced. When did you announce? So we announced about a year before George Floyd was killed. So two and a half years, we, we, we ran a long race. That's and so incredible. we had an in, in, intense focus on those issues. And then I would say there's, you know, the more recent chapter has been the uptick in, in, in gun violence. Uh, and I, I don't, I, I think I'm going to leave it to the social scientists and, and, and the data. I, don't, I think anyone who tells you that they know is 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 speculating. Um, my my speculation is that the confluence of you know a once in a hundred year you know pandemic and the sort of you know economic and healthcare dislocations that go with it is a significant factor. But to your last point, it's like what do we do about it? Uh, and this is like really hits home for me. I mean, I had a had a shooting on my block right in front of my home about two weeks ago. And it, it sort of matched the sort of conduct we've seen, at least up in my neighborhood in Harlem, of two groups of relatively young boys, men, you know, shooting at each other, and, you know, without any focus on who may be in between them or nearby. So I, I think the number one thing we have to do is get the guns off the street. 
Um, and so that means stopping the, the flow of guns coming in. It means using our community interrupters to go because a lot of these incidents are the retaliation. Um, so we've got justice involved, people who will intervene. So there's not the retaliation. Yeah, um, tell me more about that. Who are those people and where do they come from? So they're great groups. We've, we've, we've got um, a, a number of groups in the city that are uh, people who've, you know, been justice involved, whether incarcerated or convicted or- Just like mediators, essentially? Yeah, or? essentially, right? Yeah. So so something happens uh, that, you know, as they say, the streets talk, right? You know, um, generally we know something before it happens. If the police and law enforcement may not know this, you know, the streets will know. And something happens and everyone is just waiting for the other shoe to drop the retaliation. And so we've got great, I think, heroic, you know, people who will go and they'll go to places where police, you know, can't go for one reason or another. Um, and can intervene in a different way, sort of on the, their own terms. And usually it, it can just be about buying time, mm -hmm. right? Um, and getting the sort of the fuse to dim a bit. Uh, so those groups are really, really important. I think we need to be investing. I think at the federal, I don't know what the last number was, but in the uh, infrastructure bill that we're looking at, I think about $5 billion. I, I can't, I don't know where it landed, but significant funding has been successful across the country. So I think we need to do that. I think we, you know, we need to do things like you know, gun buybacks. We obviously need to use traditional tools like prosecuting the people who are shooting people. And then we need to look at the flow of guns in. Uh, so when I was at the attorney general's office, you know, we looked at every gun found at a crime scene in the state of New York and where it came from, like looking at it. What'd you learn from that? Is it like the, is it the, the sort of conventional wisdom as this iron pipeline coming from the South and basically people going to gun shows and stuff, bringing them up here? Exactly, exactly. But it's a great intelligence tool, which I want to operationalize as district attorney, because it shows you. I mean, if you if you've got a a dealer who has you know twenty guns ending up at a crime scene within six months, like well, we need to put a red circle around that dealer and construct an investigation that figures out are they complicit, are they negligent, who are they dealing with, you know, because that doesn't seem like a coincidence. Yeah. And so operationalizing that because. I'm not a sociologist and I want to kind of, you know, stay in my lane of expertise. <laughs> but what I do know is, right, like this is not the first generation groups of, you know, it's mostly boys, you know, fighting with each other. Just like before it was with fists and maybe knives, which aren't great. But, you know, when you've got a proliferation of guns, it just changes the whole dynamic. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, you've got this, I'm sure you're following this litigation in the Supreme Court right now. And you've got to me, what seems like a very scary set of facts for New Yorkers, because it's a New York case, so it directly applies to our state law. And you probably know this better than I do, but it, it seems like the issue at hand is whether you can carry a gun with you in public uh, with very little scrutiny at this point. And if, if uh, the conservatives win at the court, people could just walk around New York, correct me if I'm wrong, with, with a gun, like, it's it, at the moment, it's really, really hard to get a gun permit in New York to conceal carry. But what's the world that happens if we lose that case? It, a scary world. I mean, so in a, in a, I think we'll be put in a situation where we can, we've been told our, our restrictions are too tight and then we'll have to go back to the drawing board. That's my, I don't know how the Supreme Court will, will turn. There was some back and forth, but the justices seem to be a recognition that like, Yankee Stadium or like the two train, right? Different, right? Um, and there was or you know, school or school yeah. discussion about sort of how do you regulate that? How do yeah. you? It gets very patchwork. But to me, that is so scary. Yeah, it'd be like the Wild West out here. People just carrying yeah, like guns. Being, imagine being on the A train with you know like just people with you know guns on their hips or bars, which I think are some of the most dangerous places yeah. for guns. It's just it's so so. I mean, I, I 
didn't have an opportunity to listen to the whole argument, but but I've been following it, and it's my my former colleague, you know, Solicitor General Barbara Underwood. So, um, you know, New York's in the best hands it could possibly be in, um, you know, but obviously the court is more conservative than it has been, and the rest of the country just thinks differently about guns. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it's I do think, and even within our state, if you go upstate, there's you know different, but just you know, downstate, it's just not tenable. It is, yeah, it's a, it's a it would fly in the face of things I want to do as district attorney and make it harder, much harder, I think, to, to keep us safe. Yeah, so you essentially just have to prepare for the eventuality if it happens, right? It would come down in June, right? Which means that you'd have some time to, to plan for it. And I think, yeah, so, yeah presumably by, by June. And I think that the there will be, if, if we get an adverse decision, I think there will at least be a nod to different circumstances, yeah. um, you know, based on density or, or high security areas that will then allow our legislature to go back to the drawing board um, or some litigation in the courts. But certainly in a time where we are seeing the spike in gun violence, to have this added on, and then I would also add issue of ghost guns, right? They can buy, buy the parts of guns without serial numbers on them and put them together and have a, what we call a ghost gun. We just had legislation become law in New York State that's going to make that harder. But all of these together, right, they're, they're, we've got the traditional problem that's already happened. We have ghost guns, and then we have the Supreme Court. So that's why I say two things day one, guns and Rikers. Mm. And so back to this idea of prioritizing your prosecutions, right? One of the things that you've talked about is that there, there are certain, you want to put your resources into the violent crimes, the guns, the sexual assaults, et cetera, and that there are certain things that you're either not going to prosecute or you're going to try to prosecute in a different way. What are some of those examples of the lower level things that you think get abused? We've already talked about the way that resisting arrest is treated, but what are some other issues that you think are abused right now with the criminal justice system? So, I mean, just, just having spent the last couple of weeks, you know, litigating about Eric Garner's death, Untaxed cigarettes, right? You know, the, the notion that at the highest levels of the NYPD, we decided we were going to deploy police officers to arrest, you know, mostly black and, and Latino men for selling untaxed cigarettes. Um, to me, it's just like I've never heard a New Yorker say that was a top 50 safety. Now, that concern. was the approximate reason why they approached Garner, right? Because he was selling cigarettes. Yeah, that was their allegation. I mean, there's other evidence that he was he was actually breaking up a fight. But there was a meeting at, at, at one police plaza, you know, senior officers saying, hey, we've got this quality of life issue. Do something about it. Take care of. Which is curious. What's the quality? Whose life is being hurt by a person selling cigarettes by the in, individually, so I think that the argument is like you know, shopkeepers who are who are paying, you know, have cigarettes with the tax, or so they're paying higher. You know, people who don't want them standing around on the street. But but I mean, I, the, the premise of your question, yeah. I completely accept. Yeah. This is not something that I've never heard someone you know saying I'm losing sleep over this. And so it's just to me, it's a it's a misallocation of. I mean, this is like we're sending armed officers out where they could be doing something like we talked about on, on guns. It's the misuse of resources. But what I think is important, and, and, and I've been trying to talk to Manhattanites who are concerned, people who, you know, who, 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 you know, whatever the sort of quote unquote quiet life issue that they want something done, that, that we have other tools in the toolkit, um, we just don't have to be re reflexively incarcerating. So when I was at the attorney general's office and we were getting some of the same complaints that, you know, untaxed cigarettes, we tax cigarettes for a reason, Right. We don't want people smoking. So we we investigated Federal Express and UPS. It's illegal to ship untaxed cigarettes. They were shipping thousands and thousands of untaxed cigarettes. So we brought 
two lawsuits, right? Nobody died, no one's human dignity was impaired. We settled one, we took the other to trial and won, and ultimately got more than $100 million wow. back for the state and, and, and city public fisc. So when I'm talking to law enforcement partners, I'm saying, okay, look, that traditional approach, in this case, cost you Eric Garner's life, uh, which resulted in you know, a huge trust deficit, but also the officer time spent, you know, the number of people who will no longer be witnesses, you just could feel, right. um, versus like not getting anything yeah. done. Like, yeah. you know, you, you, you remove, you know, a couple of untaxed cigarettes from the commerce stream versus thinking about the tools you have, building a real case. You know, my theory of, of enforcement is you follow the money and the contraband, in this case, the untaxed cigarettes, and they'll, they'll take you to the most culpable people you hold them accountable and then you can get some enduring benefits. So $100 million versus what we saw in that, you know, the, the enforcement was done. So just thinking broadly about uh, the levers of government to use. And so one thing that you have the benefit of is there's some of these reform-oriented district attorneys that have come before you now most recently. So you have Chase Boudin in, in San Francisco, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. As you look to you know, the successes and challenges of some of those district attorneys, what have you learned? Like, there's anything where you're like, all right, I've now learned that X is even more possible than I thought, or I've learned that X is even harder than I thought it would be. So I'm in a relatively easier position, right? Because I think I'm probably a 3.0 version, right? I would say the 1.0 was Ken Thompson right here in Brooklyn. And then I've been able to sort of just look at what different offices have done. So his office, I think, really, you know, set the standard on exonerations and conviction review. Chicago has done some really great stuff on transparency and putting data out into the public domain. Um, Boston, a lot of my, I think about it, sort of diversion and declining cases I borrow from Boston. And we've got data that has emerged, um, data out of Boston and out of, out of Baltimore showing the benefits. People talk a lot about Boston, so maybe we'll pause there. What's going on in Boston? Because I always hear that they're like on the cutting edge. Yeah, Rachel Rollins is the is the district attorney there. She's actually been nominated to be U.S. attorney. I have kind of lost track of where that, that is in the Senate process. But she's done remarkable works. I think people talk about that work. There's been a study done of sort of the, the declinations and diverting and not incarcerating as, uh, uh, you know, reflexively on, on certain cases. Baltimore also, uh, a recent study, actually, that was driven by COVID. The, the office decided during COVID to not enforce certain types of crime. And then the data that emerged from that was really encouraging. And so, yeah, I get to benefit from that, right? I get to benefit and I get to sort of talk about it. And I would also say seeing the, the framing and the discussion, um, which is why I always really want to articulate the fairness, which is I'm approaching it through a kind of a racial justice and social justice lens, you know, but some someone who grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, considered unsafe, Harlem in the 80s, and someone who was a former prosecutor, always linking those to public safety. Because um, I think people want both, right? There's people want the system to be fairer, yeah. but they're very concerned in a very personal way about safety. So linking the two and talking about them, the example we we're just talking about, if someone says, well, I don't tax cigarettes. I don't know. That could escalate to something. And, you know, but then you walk through and you say, well, would you rather do this way? Would you rather get the $100 million? And yeah, and it's, oh, yeah. No, and, and, and they say, oh, and by the way, I'm a lot more concerned about guns. So I think just talking always about how public safety and fairness are inextricably linked is something that I've learned from following the discussion around the country. Well, one thing I've watched, and I know you're, you're not going to criticize any other district attorneys around the country, but 
you know, Krasner, for example, is being, I think, controversial in a way. And I know that it's impossible not to be controversial in these roles, but I think you've seen, a, a last time I checked, like a record low in felony prosecutions while at the same time, I think a 30-year high in murders or something. And Chase Boudin, for example, you know, there's all this footage and who knows how sensationalized this is of people just walking into pharmacies and it's like supermarket sweep and then they get out of, like, is any of this valid? Like, or, do you look at any of that and say, you know what? That makes me just a little cautious. It makes me like think a little bit differently about implementation on these issues. Like an issue, like for example, not prosecuting shoplifting under two hundred fifty dollars. You know, I've seen that footage out of San Francisco a million and one times on Twitter. People tend to tag me. Yeah. Oh, do uh, they really? Uh, yes. And look, I'm with you. Like, I don't know the full story there, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I know that in Boston, this has been Rachel Rollins' policy for a while, and we haven't seen such footage. I also have heard, you know, seen people posting and showing empty, you know, uh, you know, um, covers you know, that are like covers. years old. We did, we reported on that. Yeah. But here's my question: outside of whether those are true or not, what's to stop me under Alvin Bragg from walking outside, going into the pharmacy down the street, and? and stealing $249 worth of stuff and walking out. Yeah, look, I, I think that is an interesting question that if we get to that, we'll confront the, the sort of opportunistic, because the policy is clearly designed for the you know, homeless person I mentioned who used the yeah. counterfeit bill to buy food and toothpaste. Right. I'm just not, I'm completely uninterested in that. Now, if we've got people who are running a enterprise yeah. where they deploy 30 people to go out and steal 249 well that to me is very different right yeah. that that is a follow the money that's an enterprise that needs to be dismantled so i think having per se rules is helpful um, yeah. to articulate um, institutional priorities and and give direction to staff but i also think we can't be blind if someone is trying to circumvent them by basically building a you know uh, an organization to flout the the you know the spirit of, of of it, then you know we'll 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 take appropriate action. We can't we can't have you know if if hundred people yes. go out and take two hundred forty nine dollars and all you know build it up to a sort of a, you know the chief of the organization. Well, right. that's you know we you know I know how to do those cases. But what if it's okay? That's an organized example. Like let's say you know every day I go to this this deli by my place and it's owned by this like uh, Bangladeshi family, and it's near the Bowery Mission, and so you have a lot of homeless people in the neighborhood and at the moment every time i go in there there's there's people outside of there and there's kind of this stasis that's existed in the neighborhood which is bad civically like we have homeless people who aren't being taken care of uh and they're asking for money outside of these places um if if it gets to the point where let's say all right there's a sense that they won't get prosecuted for going into that bangladeshi Delhi. Now, a lot of them may just be like, hey, I, I'm not going to steal because I don't steal. But there, there's like a less organized version of this where it's not like, you know, Shredder and his lair sending out all the foot soldiers. But it's more like, all right, I just know that the city's not taking care of me. I'm going to go in and take stuff, which in my, like, if it's CVS is one thing. If it's like a random small business owner who's, you know, keeping it tight, what's to stop people individually making a decision to just go into that place, you know? So you'd be a great law school professor. This is what I do by day. And it's a great hypo, yeah. right? Because you, what you've taken out is my, the motivation, right? You right. this is sort of, you know, homelessness. And, but you, the key thing you said to me is the city's not taking care yeah. of it. There's, there's a deficit in services. And so there, there, and I don't know your, your, that exact corner, but I've got a couple of corners like yeah, that. You know what mind, I'm talking about though, right? right? Which is, yeah. 
you know, in the absence of the city taking care of people, people turn on each other. Right. And then right now, the only thing sometimes keeping people from turning on each other is law enforcement. Sometimes. Sometimes the neighborhood fabric is strong enough for that. But we all know that New York is kind of broken right now in certain places and, and that you can't always count on the civic fabric to keep people treating each other right. So to me, the the the, the appropriate policy prescription for that is to address your premise of the city's not taking care of me, right? So I can think of near my place two corners that are I mean, it's just very sad. I mean it's 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 clear people struggling from addiction, homelessness. And so I've been exploring with other parts of government and also with some you know private funders, like really kind of like a, a saturation of services for certain areas where we know just like we know that 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 you know we call it a hot spot call it what you want. We know that there are these conditions and things are frankly bubbled over in many places, you know, even before you start talking about changes in enforcement, it's just untenable, but I mean, it's affecting the rest of the neighborhood. And so that does, that's another example of something that goes beyond the role of the DA. But because I do think it's all linked into public safety, I feel like I've got standing in this role mm -hmm. to talk about it and help to coordinate. Uh, and so I really look forward to doing, and I just think that's also more long-term, it's more enduring and actually gets to solutions. So you're the first, black man black person to take on this role you grew up in harlem you have a lot of weight on your shoulders how do you think about that like are you do you stay up at night worrying about it like i was at your victory party and there's just a lot of hope for what you can accomplish i'm, I'm excited by it. i'm energized by it i mean look we've spent a lot of time talking about what things that sort of folks have you know criticized me for and that that there's a certain weight there too but the sort of expectations, the hope, the people who say, like, yeah, that's a good plan. Let's go do that plan is energizing. Like if I felt I was going into the DA's office alone, that might be more daunting. But uh, sobering role, certainly challenging. But to know that there there are people who've given a lot of support, really thought about this and both kind of, I would say, the kind of symbolic and the substantive merging. Right. So there's this sort of notion that, like, you know, my kids and I've told the story before my son uh, who, who at the beginning of the COVID didn't want to wear a face mask, uh, and he said, "It's anti-maskers." No, no, he he knew the he knew the science, and actually very cautious in COVID, but said, "Dad, I don't I don't want the police to mistake me for a robber and shoot me." Oh wow! Right, so like kind of internalizing that trauma, you know, at a very young age. So on primary night, he was very excited, and you know, he didn't articulate it in quite this way. But for me as a father, it's like that concern. Um, not that I can control everything that happens on every every street corner, right? But like the notion of that that person, my son, says, "Well, my dad's actually in charge of fairness and safety in Manhattan, right?" right? And you 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 know you expand that out from you know not just my kids, but to my Sunday school students, to kids I coached in little league, you know, and they're just proxies, they're placeholders for everyone's you know kids, and particularly kids who can look at me and kind of see themselves in me and growing up. That's the symbolic. But it also merges with the substantive and sort of the policies we want to do coming out of particular experiences. So sometimes I joke, I say, I'll, I'll be the first district attorney in seven years who's not a cabinet, the, the, the child of a cabinet secretary. True. <laughs> Is that um, true? It's true. Uh, uh, we have both, you know. Cy uh, and Morgenthau? And Morgenthau. Uh, um, but also I, you know, I'll be the first district attorney who's you know been stopped at gunpoint by the police. First to have a homicide victim on his doorstep. You know, the first to have a semi-automatic weapon pointed to his head. First to have a loved one re-enter post-incarceration and live with him. And so this kind of symbolic merging with the substantive, and we're going to govern from that perspective. And I say the we because, yeah, you were there that night. There's a lot of people who are not just excited in the in the kind of passive side way, but lending their expertise 
and support in terms of governing in, in, in community partnerships. So I'm excited. Well, let me kill the mood with one question before I really send you off, which is uh, we have this former president. Who, Barack Obama? <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> over here. Who's retroactively going to be prosecuted for whatever he's doing here. But uh, we have Trump, right? And you are going to inherit this investigation into the Trump orbit. And you've been careful on the stump, I believe, to say, all right, I'm not going to prejudge the case. But you have made comments about the man. So you've said, I think, something like he's lawless. I think you said to Hot 97. Do you think it's right to potentially just recuse yourself and say, you know what, I've commented on the guy. I don't need to oversee. It's not like as a prosecutor, you'd be running the case anyway. Would it make some sense to just be like, you know what, I've commented on the man. And that's enough for me to say. I trust the, the civil servants of this office and I can wall off this investigation just so that there's no sense that that I've prejudged this case. So, look, I, I think this may very well be the most consequential case in the history of local prosecution. And, you know, having just gone through a campaign where I didn't say I would do that, I think that that would be an abdication. And, look, I can't rewrite history. So, you know, when I was in the attorney general's office, we sued Donald Trump's administration more than 100 times, and I stand by those cases. That was the context when I talked about lawlessness. Yeah. Um, because a lot of those cases were the administration simply not following like notice and comment, like literally just changing the, you know, like the law and like not following any rules. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do think, and we put in our litigation papers that that was lawless. So I, I you know, I, I think substantively that's correct. Um, a little bit different from sort of him, the person. I mean, that was yeah. his administration. Um, I did also, you know, lead the Trump Foundation investigation, which was more about, you know, his conduct. But I don't think prior, you know, we, we've got lots of people who have you know, been investigated more than once by a prosecutor. Um, and I don't I don't think that a prior investigation is calls for, you know, recusal. Have you gotten any of that heat? Publicly, I know it's Manhattan, so it's not exactly like base for his supporters. But have any people come after you over that? I, I haven't. I've, I haven't had anyone come at me over that. I mean, I do think you know we've you know we've seen when I was at the Attorney General's office and the the Trump Foundation matter. This is back when the former president was on Twitter. You know, was tweeting about at that point. I think that matter was really two Attorney Generals at that point and. You know, saying that both of them, you know, were biased against him. Yeah. Um, I've got a 20-year track record of, you mentioned public corruption stuff, or, you know, prosecuting the former majority leader of the state Senate, a council member, two mayors, you know, Democrats and Republicans. You can't control what people are going to say. Right. They'll probably, you know, say things if, if a case goes forward. I don't know that, that it will. I mean, I don't know any more than, than what's in the public domain right now. But I think as with all of prosecution, and I used to tell this to people I would supervise on kind of high-profile, sensitive cases, you have to be mindful of the world, like you can't be oblivious to it, but you can't be guided by it. And that whatever decision you make, someone's going to criticize you. Yeah. Uh, and so in some ways, the criticism is liberating. Yeah. Like we were going to do the right thing anyway, but given that you can't reverse engineer, um, you know, which we're looking for is everyone to, to be happy. That you, you couldn't achieve that anyway. So just throw it out of your mind, do the right thing, follow the facts. And I, I do think it's important for 
significant matters like this. I mean, I'm gonna, I've come up the system, right? So I'm used to doing cases. Uh, I'm gonna be a district attorney who's looking, obviously can't look at every single case in the office, but I think certainly a case of, of uh, that, that could be potentially be this consequential decision to prosecute or not prosecute, whatever the next phase of the investigation is, or even just, you know, continuing the litigation of the current um, one are obviously consequential matters that I think the electorate deserves the district attorney to be looking at. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, one thing I, I, as I look at it as a lay person, you know, with, with obviously no more information than you have is as I, I, I'm obviously not a fan of the guy. The one thing I would hope is that what comes out of this process is if there is an indictment, it's an indictment that anybody would have gotten and it, he doesn't get because he's Donald Trump. You know what I'm saying? Because I think like what his supporters come, look at it and say, he people are going after him because he's Trump. And I think Tish went further than you did in her campaign for attorney general in kind of prejudging the case and, and the man. And I think if the, if you kind of flip the facts and you say, all right, if this were Hillary Clinton and this were the attorney general of Texas and and, and they were saying, you know, Hillary's crooked or like, like what we said about Whitaker when Whitaker took over the, the Mueller indictment and prejudged that case, we... People were calling him to recuse himself. So part of me is just like, all right, like I, I trust you heading into this. I my, my big concern is like whatever comes out of this, if it's an indictment, is an indictment that people look back on as be like, this is an indictment that any human being, whether they're a political person or not, because like the, as you know, I've done public prosecutions because you went after a lot of the Albany corruption, is that the standard is even higher sometimes when you're going after political people because especially if people view that there's a political gain to going after somebody, the bar should be really high to say, this is an airtight case, you know? And, and I would say, so So, I think the standard you started with, which is would you do it with anyone else, is the standard. Yeah. Right? So, you know, and, and on the Trump Foundation matter, that was the question we, we literally sat around a table. You know, there's, there's going to be nothing 100% analogous. Right. Right? But, but pull Because he's a unique guy. Yeah, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's, you know, you're not going to have to say, like, oh, let's look at what we do with the other former presidents. Right, right. Like that. right. But, like, the, 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 the underlying facts, we said, you know, I was overseeing that. So, look, bring me, bring me the comps. Yeah. Bring me the comparables. And, and then let's look at them and then ask the question, if this were someone else, would we be doing this case? And the answer in the Trump Foundation was, yes. Um, you know, this is a, this is a, and so I think do do think that that's an abiding question to to ask and one that, you know, I'll take forward with me. That's what we did in, in that matter. I mean, I vividly remember sitting around a conference table and asking for the information and looking at it and saying, well, yeah, like before I looked at this, we thought this was really pretty significant and something worth going forward on. And then we did this analysis, um, which sort of, you know, confirmed it. But we were open to saying, OK, well, yeah, we wouldn't do it elsewhere. Let's not do it here. I think that is a proper uh, analytical framework, certainly the one we use the Trump Foundation case. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's end on something else uh, more more optimistic. So 70 years from now, when my hologram is walking around <laughs> Manhattan and it, and it passes- uh, Will the, will the, the Knicks have office, won a championship by then? Oh yeah, I mean, okay. that'll be this year, okay. obviously. Right. But, and, and I pass the district attorney's office and there's a statue of Alvin Bragg in front of there. What do you want it to say? Like the, what's the one line that you want to sum up your time in this office that you're you're about to em embark on? Yeah, I'd say you know that's that's that is a probing uh, question. I mean, I, you know, I I think you know I, I want it to be said I was fair, um, uh, because I think you know first really just kind of following up on that that conversation we just had, um, and fair in a broad sense, right? Fair to the people who are harmed by conduct, fair to the people who do harm and come before the office. 
Um, but I think fairness is sort of the, the guidestone. Improve our system, and it's you know, we can't have a system without confidence in the system. And I think fairness also invariably leads to safety. Well, I'm proud of you, man. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs>